0: You're listening to the Pop Tart Podcast. Girls Down, you already know.
1: Don't be a martyr because no one will notice. The voices of little girls are often not taken seriously.
2: Secret treasures stolen from a Gothic witch's cathedral.
1: I saw, you know, I saw a seagull at the beach the other day that had, I swear, it flew by and in its mouth was a family-sized bag of Cool Ranch Doritos.
2: Hello! Hello! And welcome to pop tarts Mimi, <laughs> Mimi. <laughs> I'm Emily Rems. I'm Callie Watts. We're both editors of Bust Magazine in New York City. We love talking to each other about pop culture. We love talking to you about pop culture. And today's guest is one of the most compelling visual artists working today. Lauren Fensterstock is a sculptor, an installation artist whose sparkling, intricate creations look like secret treasures stolen from a gothic witch's cathedral or like the charred remains of a fairy swamp. Made from materials including glass, vintage crystal, quartz, obsidian, onyx, hematite, shells, sand, plexiglass, paper, charcoal, and wood. Most of her recent installations, like the one on display at the Smithsonian American Art Museum's Renwick Gallery in DC earlier this year, are enormous. They're completely black and they suck all the surrounding light into the curves and edges of thousands of individual objects assembled in patterns that both imitate nature and take nature to dramatic new heights with architectural precision. Other pieces, like some of the seven crystal-encrusted suns that were featured in Fensterstock's show Impermanent Conditions at the Claire Oliver Gallery in New York this summer, those those play similar tricks with all-white palettes, of light-reflecting glass and quartz. Both her imagination and the objects that she produces are precious and rare, and I cannot wait to chat with her. Welcome Lauren Festerstock to our show, yay! I have to start this interview by telling you how Lauren and I know each other. I met you when I was 11, and we started carpooling to Hebrew school together in lovely scenic Westchester, New York. You were a very, very important person in my life for the next four years. Aww. And then when I was 15, I moved away and we kind of lost touch until the miracle of social media brought us back together again. But I have never actually spoken to you until now. Over the last 30 years, this is the first time that I'm actually getting a chance to talk to you. So today is a very <laughs> big deal, people. <laughs> Extremely big deal. I love it. It's so and true. I have and- chills.
1: I I have thought about our time together constantly for the last thirty years, <laughs> and um, but I'm so interested to like check notes with you as adults about oh. what that was because I haven't externally processed any of it since I was 11.
2: <laughs> right, you know, I there are like so many hundreds of memories I have from that time, but a few of them I can say I remember that I heard the Ramones for the first time in your mom's car. I saw Bob Ross's Joy of Painting for the first time in your TV room. And I heard Susie and the Banshees for the very first time on a mixtape that you made for me when I moved away. So I have always remembered you as a hyper-creative person with absolutely impeccable taste. I'm not at all surprised that you have become such a major artist with work at the Smithsonian, but can you please fill me and our listeners in a bit on how you found your way to visual art as a career and how you took that dream and you made it into such an incredibly concrete reality? (laughs) Um, Well,
1: you know, it's funny because you knew me at this totally formative and probably most painful period of like preteen life and so you also know that I was despite your flattering words you know an awkward kid wasn't the popular kid um, always kind of had my nose in the book and was into like stuff that other people just weren't didn't find cool so you know I spent a lot of time isolated um, just like hanging out alone in my room I was like super goth I was like Burning the black candles. <laughs> I wonder, you too. As you
0: know, goth- um, <laughs> clicked so hard.
1: <sighs> but you know, I feel like a like a coping tool that I had was making things, um, because a lot of the things that I was interested in were so abstract, um, and and making stuff, drawing things, um, it was just a way for me to hold something in my hand and try to understand it. Um, So being an artist and using that as a way to process experience was something that I incorporated as a a young person. and then, you know, went to art school. I went to Parsons in New York. I worked at the Limelight um, all through uh, college. Oh, um, I had kind of some interesting experiences there. Um, <laughs> and then uh, moved up to the Hudson River Valley. I did my graduate work at SUNY New Paltz. And then shortly after, uh, met my partner, Aaron Steffen, who's also an artist. We took a weekend in Portland, Maine, um, And just on a whim moved to Maine and somehow have now been here for 20 years. Amazing. That's that's kind of like what's happened since I last saw you. (laughs) It's so pretty in Portland, Maine. I love it. It's changed a lot in the time we've been here.
2: I, to me, you are someone with a very, very strong signature style that I encourage all of our listeners to check out ASAP. You can like pause this show. And go over and look at laurenfensterstock.com so you can see what we're going to be talking all about. But when I think about your work, I think of objects that are monochromatic, usually but not always black, involving incredibly detailed mosaics of gorgeous natural materials in these densely fabricated environments that look organic. How and when did this style come to be your signature?
1: Yeah, it's something... um... That evolved maybe about 15 years ago. I started working in this monochromatic palette. My background is jewelry. So both of my degrees were in metalsmithing and jewelry. And, you know, from that training, I really learned to love the power of materials and also intricate labor. And, you know, as my work developed, it started getting more and more and more complex. And, um, you know, started taking over not just like a, a small object, but a whole room. And I think sometimes when artists expand the scale of their work, like if you're making a tiny painting, you have tiny brushstrokes, um, you know, and when you make a large painting of large brushstrokes, I started making large things that maintain that like small detail. Um, so rather than like blowing it up, it just got more. <laughs> um but the black was something um, that, you know, really emerged from my, my research. I'm, I'm like a crazy reader. I love like obsessively digging into very specific histories. And I started looking at histories of the landscape and I fell in love with this tool called the Claude Glass, which was um, a black convex mirror allegedly created by the painter Claude Moraine um, that you know, other painters would use as an optical device. So you could um, like look into this lens and because it was convex, it would make everything into like a perspectival landscape. And because it was black, it would kind of take out unnecessary detail and just give you like highlights and low lights. And I love this idea of this lens. So painters would like, instead of looking at the landscape, paint from the clod glass. And it's this choice to like, paint through a lens through a sort of a cultural product rather than looking at what's all around you. And so I started making these landscapes as though to show how we're always looking through a kind of cultured lens. That was kind of like the how I got there. Uh
2: Um, And like approximately, I'm sorry to interrupt, like around what year is it that this obsession took hold?
1: I would say around 2008 um, was maybe the first uh, big show at at Bowdoin College Museum of Art that I showed this all-Black landscape. Um, But then, you know, once I started playing with the Black, you know, Black just has such a a power to slip from something to nothing, um, to kind of force your attention and to reveal itself on its own terms. Um, So there was more that I found there, like kind of once I got into its, its realm. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah. I, I like, there was something, something that um struck me that was actually something that I latched onto at the time when you and I were hanging out. Do you remember that show called uh, Tales from the Dark Side? Yeah. Oh oh, yeah. And the, the intro, I was like obsessed at the time when it was on in the eighties with the the opening credits when they would be like, it's a world just as real, but not as brightly lit. And then they just like flip the thing and then like everything is black and outlined. And like, uh-huh. I remember thinking about how I, how into those opening credits I were when I started looking at your your especially landscape fuckery for better, <laughs> you know, like the things that you've done with landscapes because it looks incredibly realistic, but it's all black. And it's yeah. like it's just, it's a world that's just as real, but it is not as brightly lit to me.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean it's interesting because this year, um, for the first time, I've kind of moved into the light. And after really um you know, whatever, I can't do math, you know this, Emily, but from whatever 2008 to now is that many years um, of working entirely in Black, all of a sudden, these like monochromatic white pieces have crept in. And it really, you know, represents not just like a new aesthetic, but for me, a really new outlook on the world.
2: Well, that's what I was wondering. Do you ever feel like rebelling against this very specific aesthetic that you've created? I feel like the white pieces are still very much Lauren Fencer Stock pieces in every way, but they're shockingly white. Yeah. Um, are do you ever feel like rebelling in other ways, or did that did doing that feel like some kind of rebellion against yourself?
1: A little bit. It's interesting because I always, you know, I think like as an artist, sometimes there's this pressure to like do something new and like all of these kind of like modernist ideas, like fetishizing innovation, um, which right now I'm I'm sort of moving against, but I'm always like, next year, everything's going to be red or it's going to be something (laughs) else. And I'll do all of these experiments. And then the black just draws me back in. You know, it's like sometimes you have a voice like there's something that you have to speak and you're just tasked with that. You can't escape it. But, you know, for me, the black was always about a kind of desire for transcendence, you know, because they have this kind of absorptive quality. It's like sucking you into the dark side. Right. Um, Where the new white pieces I keep saying it's like the difference from transcendence to imminence and they're not asking me to go somewhere else, but to like really be present with what's here. Um, And they make you feel like your body in the room with that object. And for me, it makes me feel present. So it has just like a really different psychological impact, but I think that reveals a different philosophy of living.
2: (laughs) I love that. Thank you. (laughs) I mentioned in the intro that your work comes across aesthetically to me as very witchy, both Mm -hmm. the the black and the white pieces. Though part of me wonders if I would think that if you weren't a woman, but you are. And I kind of know you and I remember the the black candles in your bedroom. So I may be biased in that way as well. I, I have not spoken to you in 30 years. I don't know what you're about now. Do you consider yourself now today a witchy person?
1: Yeah, I mean Emily, I have not changed. With like, <laughs> I have not evolved much. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean I'm like your like archetypal like you know woo woo middle aged woman with like you know <laughs> all that stuff, right? like, like um, what do
2: you think? It's like personal, spiritual, or academic when you're thinking about your relation to the occult
1: all of those things. I mean, to me, some of it's just um, logical, right? Like it's, it's my experience. It's, it's what's present. Um, But, you know, I think um, uh, magic um, is an important part of art that also has been denied, you know, in, in like a lot of sort of like modernist European canon of art history. There's been such a focus on reason and logic, um, and a lot of these other voices and, and ways of knowing have been oppressed, and I think um, other systems of knowing are finally um, becoming more visible in the arts right now. You know, and especially as as more diverse makers are getting the attention they deserve. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think witchiness is in. <laughs> and i'm here for it uh, we,
2: are we are having have... a moment
1: yeah i'm living for sure.
2: <laughs> your work is also eerily apocalyptic mm-hmm. which i love <laughs> in your your smithsonian installation is called the totality of time lusters the dusk and yeah. in that work it it takes up a whole room a huge black comet is hanging midair over like this black marshland and trailing behind the comet are these giant black clouds dripping black beads of like jewelry-like rain. And I read that this piece was inspired by a 16th century German manuscript of apocalyptic artwork work called the book of miracles and i was like that's my friend lauren because i i shit you not that book is on the shelf right next to me while i'm talking to you right really now.
0: <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> i fully own that book and when oh, i read man. that i was like
1: fuck yeah lord
2: that's crazy God, i've never lauren. met anyone
1: else who knew about that book so that's pretty amazing
2: because like. the, the reproduction just came out like something yeah. like Eight years ago something six somewhere in there and like I threw myself on it like a grenade and I I gave it to my partner for Christmas knowing full well that I was giving it to myself but I was like here (laughs) the coolest book in the whole world um and then your other your other recent show that we've been talking about impermanent conditions at Claire Oliver Gallery that's based on the Buddhist sermon of the seven sons which describes the progressive destruction of seven sons resulting in total planetary annihilation. Talk to me, Lauren, about your relationship with the end times. Yeah,
1: I mean, I feel like we're in them. I saw, you know, I saw a seagull at the beach the other day that had, I swear, it flew by and in its mouth was a family-sized bag of Cool Ranch Doritos And I was like, I know this means the world has ended.
2: (laughs) It's the fifth horseman of the apocalypse. (laughs)
1: Um, But yeah, you know, it's interesting. Like the totality of time, lusters The Dusk, the piece that was at the Smithsonian um, was a piece that I started in 2019. Like that piece had a really long evolution. Um, And that was like, I, I was living in Georgia at the time. Trump was president. Um, you know, there are always fires happening, and I just—I've had this sense of real hopelessness. Um, and and you know, I, I really was thinking out of personal fear about kind of ends of worlds or ends of worlds as we know them. Um, and I was also looking at notions of time, you know, and, and trying to put things in perspective. And so the comet for me was this really important metaphor. And you think about like a comet um, and, you know, it's time span, like something like Halley's Comet, like we might see it twice in our lifetime, but its whole span is, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of years beyond what we know. And so I've been trying to kind of balance my own anxiety and and taking them seriously, but also looking at that, Within a continuum that is much greater than me, um, so I feel like with the Renwick piece, the comet, the black, that was very much about working through my fear of a possible end of the world, and then with the Seven Suns and you know this Buddhist text. Um, I feel like it was really my acceptance of my own insignificance and, and just the nature that things as I know them will change. Um, and so for me, like the the narrative of those two pieces, I think represents my spiritual arc or at least at least a change in my attitude. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, there's something weirdly optimistic even though it's like kaboom. <laughs> yeah, you know,
1: and it's like, I mean, I'm always like, you know, I mean, I'm gonna die. Like, I'm not, I'm not that worried about it. You know, I mean, I'm not like longing for it. But, um, you know, I think um, I'm not afraid of the inevitable or of change, and I'm not afraid of my own insignificance. I, I find it actually kind of inspiring that there's something, there's
2: something greater. Callie, were you? Did, I feel like I interrupted you. Were you saying something? Oh no, no. Oh, I was okay. just laughing at kaboom. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just, just fucking kaboom, right? I, um y- you were mentioning uh that the Renwick piece, the totality of time lusters the dark, you started it in twenty nineteen. It just I it just came down recently, right? Like a, a week ago or something. Um, I'm so interested in how your art actually gets made. Can you take me through, you know, you don't have to go into painstaking detail or anything, but just through the life cycle of that particular installation how did it start where did you make it and for how long and how long was it in dc and where is it now i'd love to know what the logistics are involved in making and mounting something the size of an entire giant room at the smithsonian
1: yeah um yeah i mean that piece was huge the whole piece overall is about 45 feet long um but you know i agonize over the details to a millimeter. So it's just this like expanse of insane labor. Um, I started, it's interesting. I had been living in Athens, Georgia for a year. And so the curator from the Smithsonian called me, it was my last week um, of this time in Georgia, where all I had been doing was trying to develop ideas. And she called me and invited me to be in the show. And it was kind of this perfect timing in which I had done all this research, I was about to go home, and now I had a project to go home with. So I came back to Maine. At the time I was working in this tiny um, bedroom on the second floor of my house, which is a very small house. I live in this like 1820 brick carriage house that's only 16 feet wide. Um, Your art is huge, but your house is huge. I know, it's crazy. So I started with drawings, and then I wound up getting um, a bigger studio just to make that piece, which is like in this old um, warehouse, like right on the waterfront in in Portland, Maine, like eight feet from the ocean. Um, And then I just spent uh, about a year in this warehouse making this piece. COVID happened two months into fabrication. And... I just went every day by myself and cut up tiny pieces of glass and stuck them in cement on these objects for about 12 months. Um, And so, yeah, it was like this really weird period um, where I'm making this piece about ecological disaster. There's a (laughs) pandemic happening. There was like the insurrection. There was like all of these things were going on. And it was pretty wild. Then we installed the piece and then it was open for like three weeks and then it closed. And it was just hanging for seven months all alone in the Smithsonian. (laughs) And like part of me was pretty upset because I was like, oh my God, I spent all this time making this thing and no one's going to see it. But then... Part of me, like the less emotional, more conceptual part of me was like, this is so great. It's about like a world that's not just for humans or that doesn't need humans. It's like the world is kind of indifferent to our experience.
2: And if the world ends, then it would be in the Smithsonian. Forever. Forever. Right.
1: Right. I have. Yeah. (laughs) I would have liked to see like the ruins of it, you know, like crashed like under piles of dust there. (laughs) (laughs) Just like great documentation.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And so, and now where is it? Where does it go? So it's still- Where does it live? (laughs) Yeah. So
1: it's still there. And then I'm actually going to go down to DC next week and deinstall it. And then it's going to go to another museum, the Chrysler Museum in Norfolk, Virginia, um, where it will have a second life. And it's interesting. It's a very different room. So it'll be- a totally different iteration of the same elements. So, it's like it comes back, but it comes back in a different way.
2: Do people own Lauren Fencer stock pieces? Like, do people have a wing of their house devoted to their Lauren Fencer stock that they bought?
1: They do. I mean, I don't want to know about a wing, but I would say like a wall for sure. Yeah, definitely. And you know, through Claire Oliver Gallery, uh, who's my my gallery in New York, she's my um, commercial representative and kind of fighter. Um, so yeah, and, and that was a nice thing about the recent show on Permanent Condition, those sons, it was the first time I had worked on something small in a few years that someone could bring into their home. Um, and I love that connection. And it was interesting, like with that work, which you know was the story of these seven sons appearing one by one, and then together their cumulative heat like desiccates the planet i love that now they're all going to separate homes and I see the new owners as like the guardians of these sons. Like they need to like protect them and keep them apart, right? <laughs> to maybe like stave off. So, you know, I, like I, I am interested in like what happens when someone else has this relationship or responsibility. There, there's
0: totally going to be like an action movie where somebody's trying to steal these seven sons and get them together to
1: burn up the world. <laughs>
2: Oh yes. (laughs) It's very like Harry Potter like. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I'm like, okay, now we have to make this happen. Yeah. I'm like, (laughs) I'm writing
0: the movie right now, it's happening.
1: (laughs) Like maybe animated would be good. But for like
2: the big the bigger things, like do you have to go and install like make the installation in someone's house when they buy it?
1: Yeah, I mean the bigger things tend to be more institutional, and some of them, you know, they're temporary, so they're um, constructed to be kind of have their moment and then go away, and then I kind of break them up and, and reuse the components.
2: You are part of a creative power couple mm-hmm. with your partner Aaron Stefan, Stefan, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, your partner, Aaron Steffen, who does large sculptural public art commissions. So, how did you two meet and how do you manage a relationship with two very big careers that involve literally making huge things?
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so we met. We were in a bar in New Paltz, New York, and I was dancing on a table and I saw him. how it works. It's and I place. was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that was in 1998. And I will say, like as an aside, I'm so excited that like when you knew me, did you ever think I would have a boyfriend?
2: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, I thought you would have a boyfriend and know. a hot one, yes.
1: <laughs> um, we met, we dated for two weeks, and then we went on a three-week road trip of the Deep South. We drove from New Paltz, New York to Graceland and then nice. we came back and we moved in together and we've been together that was 1998 we've been together ever since wow. 23 years yeah That's and um you know we so we really also like became adults together and we developed as artists together i mean we were both making you know student work small works and you know, we've really, like, helped each other grow as artists. He's, like, his – we have side-by-side studios. And it's, like, I can't make out, make anything without, like, we're constantly back and forth, like, giving approvals to things. Yeah. Um, but he's such, like, an iconoclast. And he's, like, a real rule breaker. Um, so he's, like, one that will, like, make systems and then immediately break them. And so he's good for me because I can kind of, like – get in this like very serious groove and he just comes over and just like fucks it up in in a really <laughs> supportive positive way. <laughs> he's a good that he's is- like my disruptor.
2: <laughs> that is so funny like to hear you say that because when I remember hanging out with you, I remember you being like one of the first people where I actually felt comfortable breaking rules with someone like I see you in in terms of like my formative life as the iconoclast of like my preteen years like we would go to your house after school and before we went to Hebrew school and we would just like do fucked up shit that you're not supposed to do like (laughs) nothing like crazy and like crimey but like we would call like 18 and older party lines and pretend like we were 25-year-old aerobics instructors when we were like <laughs> twelve. You know, I just love, like you know, it was bad, so just like bad stuff that you're not supposed to do. And I feel like I was always such a Frady cat and I learned to be more brave and to view rules much more skeptically by hanging out with Lauren stuff,
1: <laughs> I'm like, that's hilarious. I don't know. I mean, I think I'm still a little bit like that. Like, I think I'm always the person people call when they're like, I want to go out and drink and get crazy. Like, I'm <laughs> everybody's excuse to, like, stay out late and do bad things still. Same. Same, um,
0: same.
1: You know, like, whatever that is, that's still my baseline. So he's, like, worse. <laughs> you know <laughs> oh my god i love that for you yeah no he's good
2: and you know, and yeah. Go and you settled in maine like you both have these really huge art careers like often people tend to like be near the heat where the art scene action is um but you guys are ensconced in portland maine is it just because like there's actual space to do shit there is that the appeal
1: yeah, I mean it was sort of again like it was an accident. We came here for a weekend for Aaron's 25th birthday. And then we just kind of stayed here. I mean, I figured we'd be here for like a year and then, you know, like 20 21 years passed. Um but I love it up here. It is very different like pace and culture than, you know, we have been living in in New York City. Um but, you know, the quality of life is great. We have space. It's quiet. I love the winter. It's like nobody fucking calls you. Like I can just get into the studio and be totally undisturbed for like three, four it's months. Without up people. There. Yeah. It's Yeah. cold as fuck in the winter. Yeah. <laughs> but I like it, you know. It's like, you know, it just like, it, it gives me a really good time to like, be impermeable, you know, and to just like be in my own, my own space. But New York is like a one hour flight. My parents, Emily, still live in the exact same house. Do they
2: really? I bet if I went
1: to their house, it would
2: blow my mind
1: apart. My room is unchanged. There is still a Susie and the Banshees poster on the back of the door that my mother oh – like my God. Hasn't, I don't think she's ever been in there and closed the door, so she doesn't know it's still there. <laughs> oh, my
2: God. Sid Vicious the turtle there? You made a ceramic turtle, and we named it Sid Vicious. I don't know. I have to look. I remember Sid Vicious quite vividly. He was missing a leg, but <laughs> – You know, ceramics.
1: Yeah. But, you know, but to go back to the question, like, I think um, – I'm happy to be out of the center. Like I, I, I feel like I'm, it's easier for me to access my own voice with a little bit less interaction.
2: It makes. I'm sense. so interested because, like, we're just now working. I've worked at at Bust for 20 years. Like this month, it's 20 years, and for the very first time ever, we're permanently remote. And yeah. so I'm like. What do I even like? Do I stay in this miniature apartment, or do I do I go somewhere else where I'm not in a miniature apartment? Like, you I don't go even somewhere know. else. You get a table. <laughs> yeah, right now I'm talking to you with my laptop on a TV tray because my apartment's so small I don't have a table. Um, so I'm trying to reimagine my life, and I love imagining, I'm imagining you in you Maine. In a lot of space, you could totally hang out in Maine because you like it cold. I love it cold. Yeah, Yeah. I love the cold. You got to come. And there's beaches everywhere. I know. I want to live by the ocean. Um, Lauren Fensterstock, I need to ask you, are you a feminist? Absolutely. (laughs) So tell me, when did you decide that you were a feminist and how has your feminism impacted your work? Yeah. Um, I mean, I feel like I've always been a feminist,
1: even if I didn't know that language. Um, it's interesting because a lot of the artwork that I make is from the history of women's crafts. So things like shell working, paper cutting, mosaics, they're not things that have ever been in like the canons of Western art. You know, they're things that were like schlocky, they were a hobbyist, um, like the voices of little girls are often not taken seriously. And I think that's an important voice that needs to be heard. And I think, um, you know, a lot a lot of the time those crafts are also limited to like dialogues of domestic life. Um like the arts of the parlor talk about the parlor. And so I think part of what I've tried to do as an artist is show how the methods that are historically female can tackle the biggest philosophical, ecological, and ethical issues of our time. I love this answer. I know. I love that answer too. <laughs> I, love
2: I, I feel like that ties in with bust magazine so well, like art, Our um, founder and editor-in-chief, Debbie Stoller, she just felt really strongly like that feeling that second wave feminism had discarded what were known as the womanly arts. And like she really wanted to like celebrate all of those crafting traditions in a feminist context through a feminist lens as things that like, like not things that were woman's work, but things that women did to give themselves pleasure and to make the world more beautiful.
1: Absolutely. I mean, and again, like as an artist, it's so I'm always interested in these ideas of like unmastery. And it's like I went to art school where I learned techniques, but it's so funny. Like someone's telling you like this is the correct way to make a mark or to like build something out of plaster. But it's those are only right because someone has decided that this was correct and sort of like passed down an approved method. And I think, you know, as an artist, like I can take any material and use it any way I want. And to me, that's like a material act of feminism in which things don't have to be used within the language in which they've been assigned.
2: Um, I would like to know, this is a question that we ask all of our guests. And that question is, what you watching?" And it's a broad pop cultural question. We want to hear about books, movies, music, television, um, music videos, anything that you are consuming pop culturally. We want to know about it because it's probably very, very cool. Lauren Fensterstock, what you watching? Okay. Well,
1: I just finished watching physical which oh. is on Apple Plus, And it's Rose Byrne who was like the lawyer in Damages with Glenn Close. And she's this kind of like unhappy housewife who finds aerobics. And they've like really kind of nailed some um, – like her hair is like kind of my dream hair. And they've got some <laughs> like pretty sweet 80s music and aerobics looks. So that that's kind of what I spent this week watching – um, I have to say, the thing I watch the most, and it's I shouldn't admit this publicly, but you know, Emily, you know that like we had watched some soap operas back in the day, and I started watching The Young and the Restless Uh-oh. in 1987, and I'm still watching it. Wow. It's your stories, um. and it's like all the same actors. They're actually like my longest relationships. Um, yeah, like yeah. Long I know everything about these people um so that has been like my metronome that's like my constant ch- and nothing Amazing. much changes in that world either um so
2: that's kind I of think like
1: that
2: i was just gonna say if santa barbara was still on i would still be watching it and you know that's true oh me. my god yes yeah no I never is really santa stopped? barbara
0: the one that ended in the plane crash i don't know
2: and it it just i think it just ended with a whimper yeah <laughs> yeah like i don't remember a plane crash but um, like- people from that show still pop up occasionally I in like know. Real Housewives and stuff.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. Other than that, um, I just started today, I started a book, what is it called? Imperfecting, Imperfect Archiving, Archiving as Practice for a Love of Softness, which is um, from this uh, small publisher in Brooklyn that I'm kind of obsessed with called Gender Fail um, that uh, focuses on like queer and trans authors, and they had a book come out a few years ago called, um, it called "Radical Softness as a Boundless Form of Resistance?" Um, that has been like a really guiding force in my thinking, about like allowing space for vulnerability and for softness.
0: I love that. Yeah,
1: so I read all their books, so there's
2: a shout out to gender Fail. I love it, oh my God. Yeah. next time, like someone shouts at me on the street for being fat, which happens more often in the summer than in the winter, I can like come back at them about my radical softness. Right? <laughs> don't be don't be afraid of my radical softness
1: <laughs> And then let's see music. I've been obsessively listening to leonard cohen and and specifically his very last album right before he died, You want it Darker. Um, And sometimes like I'll listen to it like 10 times in one day. It's probably a little creepy, but it's just like the best album. It has like storytelling and religion and um, it's just, it's so beautiful. There's a great, I just saw this interview of him when they had first released the album and the cover is this like picture of him leaning out a window, smoking a cigarette. And the guy interviewing him says, I thought you quit smoking. And he leans in and he says, you just can't trust some guys.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Lauren Fensterstock, I love you so much. I love you too. I'm so excited to see you and to talk to you and to have you on our show. I feel like there needs to be a a meetup. I know. Yeah. We didn't discuss what
1: I would consider our magic hour. Talk about it. Let's discuss it right now. Okay. So, Emily, this is, to me, our time. And this was like this precious time. To me, it's like the 15 minutes before the alarm rings and you're just like, I have this magical moment. We would get off the bus at your house and we would walk to this little market, which to me was a really big deal because you couldn't walk anywhere from my house so, like, to go to a store and buy something was, like, one of my first acts of autonomy that we sale did together. Salem market. Sale and, market. Mm-hmm. and we would go and we would, like, pool our allowance and buy a bag of smart food and, like, a soda. And smart food what had just come bag. out. Yeah. What is it had,
2: smart food? Oh.
1: It's, it's cheese popcorn. Yeah. Oh, but all right. It, it had just come out. It was, like, new. Mm-hmm. Like, there had not been, like, cheese popcorn in a bag. Like, it was, like nectar of the gods. And then we would go to Emily's house and we would watch Santa Barbara. And at the end of that hour, like her mother would take us to Hebrew school. But like in that hour, we like had, it was like, we discussed everything. And it was this just it. like That's precious so time of like freedom and fantasy and intimacy.
2: Yeah, especially because Hebrew school is the absolute fucking worst. I hated it like poison, but I got to I got to have that magic hour with Lauren. Sometimes it was at my house. Sometimes it was as at her house where we would prank call party lines and watch Joy of Painting. And um, but yeah, that those that hour before Hebrew school was the total best. And um, also in the car. Yeah. Um, going there and then coming back with Lauren was the best. But actually being in Hebrew school was the tortures of the damned. So like it was, you know, like Lauren was like the, the silver lining on either side of that dark cloud. Yeah. It was really like
1: to this day, I hate Hebrew school. Like it was just torture. Like I can't let it go. It was bad. Yeah. <laughs> But that—that's like it's funny too. And there were like some mean kids, you know. And like it's funny. I recently—I should admit this—but like I Google one of the people who was like the meanest, and I was like, "What happened to them? I bet they amounted to nothing," you know.
2: And mm-hmm. she was like a Rhodes Scholar.
1: <laughs> I was like, "Oh no,
2: <laughs> no! Oh my God! Tell me who it is." And then Logan, listen to me, Logan, cut this part out so it doesn't come out. But tell me who it is. <laughs> <laughs> is a road scholar <Rhodes> <laughs> Wow. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for being a friend.
1: Oh, my God. Thank you. I, I'm, so, I'm sort of this sort of like
2: awesome. overwhelmed just hearing your voice. Like when you first started talking, it made like all of these chills run up and down my spine. Cause it's Aww. like such a primal memory. Thank, Thank you too. so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for making the world such a beautiful place. Thank you so much. It's so wonderful
1: to connect and to, I know. to see I was, that you felt. <laughs> this is so cute. I'm loving this. I would
2: love to talk to you and see you more in the future because you are the best. You are the best. We're gonna take the very briefest of breaks, and then I'm gonna come back with Callie. I'm gonna ask Callie, and Callie's gonna ask me, "What you watching?" What you watching? Before we get back to the show, I want to tell you about our new sponsor, Wolfie Vibes Publicity. If you're working on a new project and find yourself in need of a kick-ass publicist who communicates well and works tirelessly to get you the coverage you're after, consider going to Wolfie Vibes Publicity. Wolfie Vibes Publicity is a female-owned and operated boutique PR firm that will get you where you need to be, and you'll even have fun in the process. Get in touch via wolfievibespublicity.com for details and quotes, and tell them that Pop-Tart sent you.
0: Essentially, I started it because every female comedian I know was amazing and hardworking and hilarious, and I knew would make great podcasts, and every male comedian I know already had a podcast and was doing their own thing. (laughs) Hi, I'm Kate Moldenhauer, the founder of More Banana Podcasts, a comedy podcast network entirely produced, hosted, and led by women. We have shows about politics.
1: Hey everybody, welcome to Let's Get Civical. When the Supreme Court put stuff on their calendar, they used the word docket.
0: So their Google Calendar is a docket. Is a docket. So technically I have a docket. You have a
2: docket, we all have, we docket. All have a docket.
0: Sex? Welcome
2: to my vagina, I'm Jesse Karen. This is Rebecca Frank. What were ancient Greek dildos made of, Jesse? They were made of padded
1: leather and, yep, anointed with olive oil. Yep. <laughs> Scams?
2: I'm, I'm Caitlin Smith.
1: And, <laughs> and we, we love scams. scams. She tells them she's a German Russian heiress and she seems like she has a lot of money and people buy it. That's yeah. basically what's happening. So as soon as she got a loan, she would cash it as much as she could out before anybody caught on. It's which is so smart. I mean, it's so, so smart. Like, <laughs> I mean, it's terrible, but like to take that money out immediately. Because women are
0: actually pretty versatile and funny more banana is a network of women's voices unfiltered and uninterrupted find us everywhere you get your podcasts and learn about our growing roster of shows at morebanana.com one two three four one two three four
1: hey pop tart listeners have you been trying to record your own podcast but you keep getting bogged down by technical problems Luscious Logan can take the raw recordings of your show, edit and produce them to give them that rich, full-body sound that you hear right now. If you have a deep need to express yourself and sound good in the process, reach Luscious Logan, lusciouslogan13 at gmail.com. That's lusciouslogan13 at gmail.com. If you want to have that luscious sound.
2: We're back. Hello. Hello. We just talked to Incredible Sculptor and my friend, Lauren Fensterstock. I love that you guys go so far back. That was so adorable. I love it. It was amazing. I can't believe I haven't talked to her in 30 years. Now I feel dumb. Like, we should have been talking all this time. Well, when you guys said that, I
0: was like, well, that's because when you guys lost distance, it was there wasn't an internet.
2: There was no internet. <laughs> yeah. So,
0: like, I, I definitely had friends move that I would love to reconnect with, but I can't even remember their last names.
2: Oh, like there was Brandy and Shauna.
0: I don't know their last names. They were sisters and we slept at their house all the time.
2: Fenster stock is an easy name to remember. Yeah. (laughs) So we got that going for us. All right, Callie, now's the part of the program where I ask you because I want to know, and I got to know, and I need to know what you watching. What am I watching? Um, well, I've been listening to this song,
0: Hate My Ex by Kane Perez. and It is <laughs> so brutal. I found it on TikTok, and it's just people reacting to it because it it's hilarious. It is brutal. It starts out with the line, I hope you fall down the stairs and you break your neck. And then it just gets wild from there. There's, I wrote down a couple of the lines that I thought are the funniest. It's like, your teeth turn black and your hair won't grow. Your dog and your cat. I hope they die in the snow. <laughs> no. So that's so harsh, right? And then I hope you get a rash from your deodorant. So you musty. And I hope you get corona, bitch. And this one, this line is my favorite of all. Hope you go to wipe your ass and the tissue breaks. Do-to finger, head, ass. I don't miss you, skank.
2: Doodoo finger.
0: I mean, how that is c- cruel to say. I hope you wipe your ass. <laughs> shoe breaks. That's see, detail-oriented hatred. Finger. It is really, really fucking funny, and it, and it's a bop. The beat is awesome. It's by Kane Perez. I'd never heard of him before. Once again, TikTok did me proper. Um. Wow. So that was great, and I it's been on repeat. Um. Then I watched heartbreak with Meryl Streep and, and Jack Nicholson.
2: Oh, isn't a heartburn?
0: Yeah, oh, heartburn, yeah. And, um, you know, my main takeaway from this is why did anybody think Jack Nicholson was attractive to be a leading man like this? Why would Meryl yeah. Streep <laughs> in any world <laughs> fuck around with that forehead and those eyebrows? Like, what? Why would she see that face that raisin face in a party and be like,
2: oh, he's so dreamy.
0: <laughs>
2: you know, women go for charisma and some women like, like sort of like scariness, you know? Hmm. His, I mean,
0: also I was talking to somebody about this and it could just be because whenever I look at him, I think of um, The Shining. So his face yeah. is just creepy to me. Also creepy in this movie Kevin Spa- Spacey, who I hate and despise because he's—he hasn't been arrested yet, right? But he's been accused multiple times of of uh, molesting children, what teen boys?
2: Um, yeah, under underage
0: boys. Yeah. Wasn't that was he in Open Secret? Was he in that movie?
2: I didn't see that movie, so I don't know. Oh, it was really disturbing.
0: Anyway, he plays, like, a punk, and I was like, oh, who is this punk guy I recognize? Because this movie's from the 90s, and I was like, oh, it's fucking Kevin Spacey. Gross. <laughs> so those were my new takeaways on Heartbreak. Um, then I am obsessed now with this movie called, or this show, Manifest. I had, I had seen it before. I think I may have talked about it on here. It's was like, I'd only seen the first season. A part of the first season, I guess I hadn't even finished it, and it's about a plane that disappears for five years, and then when they, when it comes back, everybody is still the same age and didn't know that any time had gone. Ooh, right. So then everybody's lives have changed, and but then they all start getting these visions, and um, that like lead them to like save people's lives and stuff, and so the thing with it is, <clears throat> I got back into it because. There was, like, I guess it got canceled on a real cliffhanger. And it was supposed to be, like, a certain amount of seasons. And then it was on NBC, and it was streaming on Netflix. But then NBC got Peacock as its streaming thing. So Manifest kind of just got, like, lost in there, like, contract-wise, I suppose. And then the third season is on Hulu. So now they canceled it. At like apparently, I I'm on the third season now, so we're. But it's sad because I'm setting myself up to know that I'm not going to see what happens. <laughs> I've heard no payoff, right? But they may save it, and then if they save it, save it, then I'm, I'll feel good. Um We talked about Kevin Hart and Snoop Dogg's Olympic highlights. Did you see the episode that had Simone Biles on it? I don't think so. It was I don't think I did. the last one, I believe. And it was so cute. They are so uplifting. Snoop was like, you know, we support girl power over here. And I was like, mm. I love you, <laughs> Snoop Dogg. They are so cute together. And then um, lastly, another thing that I stumbled upon via the TikTok is um, Under a Rock with Tig Nataro, which was from... Um, It's part of, it's on YouTube. Where did I put the note on where it's from? Oh, it was from Funny or Die on YouTube. And so apparently she doesn't know any famous people. She doesn't recognize any way. She doesn't pay any attention to famous people. And so the premise of the show is people come on. And she tries to figure out who they are. (laughs)
2: And they're, like, super legit famous.
0: Yeah, it's like Melissa Joan Hart, James Vanderbeek, Whitecliff Sean was hilarious. She was just, like, he did, would just, like, start singing something in her in her face. She was just, like, in awe. She's like, what is even happening? And then he started doing handstands and shaking his ass upside down. And in her face, she was just, like, just in awe of him. But, um, <laughs> yeah, it was really funny. So she just has literally no clue. And she's like, and, and let's please introduce my guest, this person,
2: <laughs> this person that feels like, it sounds like, uh, having story meetings at bust magazine. <laughs> yeah. When I was
0: like, who that? Um, but then, so after that, I was just watching some of the shorts. And then after that came on a YouTube of Jennifer Aniston and Tignatara clips. Cause I guess they're really good friends. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. And they, they like, I guess, get along really well. And Tig and her partner were talking about uh, – Tig had wanted her partner to run for governor or mayor or something like that and realized that she would be the first lady. And got really excited about that whole concept. And then they kept making that joke, and they thought it would be really funny to do a movie where um, a woman is the first is – the, is the president and Tig's the first lady. And she called Jennifer Aniston, and Jennifer Aniston signed on without even having a script. She was like, oh, I'll do this. This is hilarious. And then there was, like, a whole bidding war for it, and she went 2018, when they didn't even have a script. (laughs) Everybody was just like, yes. Jake is the wife, the first lady, and Jennifer Aniston is the president of the United States. And so it was in development, and then Jake got sick. But now it's, because I was Googling, I was like, well, whatever happened to this genius idea and i found something from the daily beast and from last year that tig said the script is done and development should be starting on it soon so it's going to be called first lady and i can't wait for it awesome future future news
2: i hope it really happens (laughs) future what you're watching
0: oh and and then one last thing i watched was suicide squad which i absolutely did not think i would like um because i'm not into superhero movies it was on hbo Or HBO Max. And I actually really liked it. It was really funny. And um, I liked that Margot Robbie as the Harlequin character. She's really good. She's really expressive. I like her. There was a weird character character that was like a crazy person-sized weasel. (laughs) And then there was like a giant dumb shark that was played by Sylvester Stallone. Weird. It was all beautiful. It was not what I expected. Viola Davis was in it. She was awesome. Idris Elba is in it. There was a guy that's just called the polka dotted man, and he just throws polka dots at people, and kills them.
2: <laughs> polka huh, I don't know anything about this. Like, I don't know anything about most comic book related things. So, so this is all new to me. It sounds fascinating. I
0: know. It was totally like a. Like a little clip came on and I was like, actually, I'll give this a shot. And I was like, this is fucking funny. I'm I'm into it. It was way funnier than I thought. Pete Davidson is in it for like a minute. Huh. I would give it a go if I was you. It was I was pleasantly surprised.
2: surprised. Very nice. And what have you been watching? Thank you so much for asking. Well, thanks to you and your insistence, I watched all of White Lotus and enjoyed it very so much. Oh good. I was all caught up by the time the finale became like all everybody was watching on Twitter all at once. So I was like able to participate in that global phenomenon of everyone watching the finale of White Lotus together. Oh, they were live. They were like live tweeting it. Cute. And then um, the most exciting pop cultural news for me this week is that Lindy West, um, who wrote the amazing book Shrill that became the amazing Hulu television series Shrill, based on her life, has a new Substack uh, newsletter and it's called Butt News. Yeah. <laughs> and Butt News is actually a movie club. And what she does is there's been two so far and I can't wait for the next one. She chooses like kind of a dumb movie. And she like gives you a heads up at the beginning of the week, like, here's the dumb movie I chose and gives you time to watch it before her actual newsletter comes out at the end of the week. And then her like she recaps the whole movie, like basically scene by scene. And it's like the funniest. It's basically like the most if if mystery science Theater 3000 was just like instead of little puppet robots it was just like the funniest feminists in the world (laughs) I'm picturing
0: like you know when Leslie Jones does commentary on anything
2: yes Yes. (laughs) anytime
0: or like when she was doing the Game of Thrones that was so good
2: oh my god so like you could theoretically wait and read while you're watching but I, I went the route where I watched and then read it like shortly after I watched it so it was still fresh in my mind and it's so funny. So it was the movie? news movie club number one was Sleepless in Seattle, which uh, I haven't seen you since night I'm not. And her yeah. but had a observations on it were so funny that it totally made it worth it. I was like, like all the parts of that movie were like, wait, what? Wait, what? 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 Like she she catches every moment and many moments that you don't that you didn't realize were insane. And then And then she catches them. And then the second one was The Fast and the Furious. And I will tell you that I tried twice to watch this movie. The first time I made it a quarter of the way through before falling asleep. And then I started reading the newsletter. And it was so funny that I went back to watch it again and then watched like another quarter. So at this point, I've watched half of the movie and read half of the recap. I might just finish by reading the recap and take her word for it. I really recommend signing up for Butt News Movie Club. It's free, and it's on Substack. Just look up Lindy West, Butt News, on the interwebs. And then, um, interestingly enough, I was bribed um, this week by uh, the great people over at Peacock. They wanted me to watch Andy Cohen's new show, X-Rated. And they sent me this beautiful basket full of wine And cookies and a vibrator and massage oil and flowers. And then I watched the show and I was like, you didn't even have to bribe me to watch it. It's actually pretty good. It's called X-Rated, ex X X X-Rated. It's on Peacock and it just started. And they put, I think they just dumped all of the episodes on. So you could binge it if you want. He hosts it along with this sexologist who is a woman of color named Shan Boudram the first episode was this dude and they have him like rate himself on a scale of 1 to 10 in all kinds of like sexuality areas and then they actually trot out three or four of his exes and reveal what they rated him and right. like it's also weirdly sex positive like this guy apparently like was phobic he was sort of like an anti germ person and he expected oral sex but didn't reciprocate oh and that's like me I
0: I I just say I have a lazy mouth lazy jaw
2: (laughs) (laughs) and he actually like was sort of phobic about putting his mouth on vaginas and the lady the sexologist you know she didn't put his mouth on her vagina but she like she like put a napkin and rubbed it across her vagina And then put it under a black light next to, like, all kinds of common household items that were, like, totally lighting up next to the black light. But the napkin did not uh, because it didn't have any bacteria on it. Yeah. and This just reminded me of
0: something, though, not for nothing, about my lazy jaw. When I was on vacation recently, somebody was like, oh, I remember the first time that um that I ever heard about you or met you and somebody was like oh don't go in that room Callie is sucking like loud dick and I was like I just started laughing and I was like that's impossible that wasn't me hold on and I turned around to my friend Big James and I was like Big James this guy said he heard I was sucking loud dick and he was like you never suck a dick you don't suck dick who was that then and I was like could not be me sir I'm notorious
2: <laughs> Callie is notorious for not sucking, not sucking dick in the but case of like, me. Facen identity. I was like, but you go ahead and keep that
0: rumor out in these streets. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you go ahead and let people have their hearts broken and their hopes let down. It's
2: not gonna be me. <laughs> you All know, right. if you don't want to, you don't want to. I'm but just ma- lazy. Maybe just, I'm lazy. Shan can talk you through your phobia, but it doesn't sound like you're phobic.
0: No, I'm just lazy. <laughs>
2: And, of course, the last thing that I've been watching is the Majestic Pop-Tarts Patreon page, which we created because we would like our listeners to help us to keep Bust alive. And hopefully you'll be excited by the goodies and incentives that we've hooked up for Pop-Tarts listeners at patreon.com slash Podcast. Callie, you and I, with help from our girl gang, have been typing up show notes exclusively for Patreon donors that include links to what everybody has been watching for all 114 episodes. We've got totally ad-free episodes available. There's exclusive content on there, including our amazing episode with Big Frida. You can, if you um, sponsor us at a high enough level, you can Zoom chat with Callie and I. We'll shout you out on the show. There's all kinds of little little incentives and treats that we've assembled to hopefully entice you into becoming a sponsor of this show. Please check out all the goodies that we have assembled at patreon.com slash pop tarts podcast, and maybe toss a few shekels our way. Mm -hmm. Why don't you? Thank you. Well, this was a fun one. Yeah. Thanks. I would like to also say thanks to our luscious producer and sound engineer, Logan Del Fuego, Arr, muy caliente, Logan. And of course, our girl gang at Bust Magazine. You can find me on Twitter at Emily Rems and on Instagram at Rems Emily. You cannot find Callie on social media, so don't try, right? Nope, 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 nope. You can, however, email both of us. I'm at Emily Rems at bust.com. Callie W at bust.com. And you can learn more about this show at bust.com slash pop Finally, if you wouldn't mind, please rate and review this podcast on Apple podcasts. It really helps us get the word out and we super duper appreciate it until next time. We still want to know how to lose five pounds in five seconds by simply standing correctly. This girl has lost five pounds almost instantly improve your looks as much as you can improve your looks as much as you can it will help you in your social life and later in getting a job